I invite you to turn in your Bibles, and if you don't have one, there should be one underneath the seat uh, in front of you, hopefully, one of the Blue Pew Bibles. Turn with me to the book of Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 15 this morning. If you are using the Blue Pew Bible, uh, page 973. You know, it is accurate to say that every single person is in some type of relationship with God. And that relationship, this is every person, and that relationship is what we call covenantal. Uh, that means it's, it's based upon and it flows out of a covenant that God has established with us. For that means for us to have a relationship with him. Now, if that is true, which it is, we see it out of God's word. If that is true, then it stands to reason that we should all want to know about that relationship. We, we should want to know the nature and the details of our covenantal relationship because through it, we are either right with God or we're not. That's the only two Options. We're either right with God or we're not. And so it's important for us to understand where we are with Him and to understand the nature of those uh, covenant relationships and uh, a great deal about them. And, and thank the Lord that He hasn't left us in the dark concerning this question with an inability to understand and as we come to understand about this relationship, this covenantal relationship with him, again, thank the Lord, and I think about this often, that he hasn't just sort of out of, out of heaven dropped down a, 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 an instruction manual and said, kind of in a, in a cold way, look it up, and this is what you've got to do. Uh, it's not that at all. That's cold, that's detached but instead He brings that understanding to us. He brings it to us out of lives, people that aren't so much different than we are, people who are sinful or who were sinful when they lived here upon the earth and, and broken like us. And He uses all of this in the context of biblical history to make plain to us what He's all about. And... Uh, where we are with Him and, and what we need. You know, Psalm 103, 14, I think about this verse often, says He knows our frame. And there's tremendous comfort in that. He knows our frame, for we are dust. What that means is that we need to seek to understand uh, what He has given us, especially about this salvation story. Uh, this understanding of, of relationship with Him, what we often call redemptive history. We need to understand that out of His Word. And, and that's our task this morning uh, as we turn uh, to the middle of Galatians chapter 3. Uh, as we look at two of God's covenants, and we're going to be looking at what they mean and who they were made with and what that means to us today and how they apply to us. And so here, 
right in the middle of, uh, of chapter 3 of Galatians, I need to remind you that Paul is still addressing the same problem that he's been addressing all the way through with these people, with the Galatians, and a number of church scattered throughout this, this region called Galatia. Uh, he, he had instructed them, they had been instructed on the true gospel. And they had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, true faith, at least that was apparently uh, where they had come, or many of them had. Yet now they have fallen under the influence and I think we could even say fallen under the spell, because previously he uses a word like that, uh, of what we can call the Judaizers. A people who teach uh, a performance gospel. You know, it's, that, it, it's what you do. It's, it's how you perform that gains you status with God, and that in, improves your status with God. It's a teaching that ultimately puts a heavy weight on people. Because what if you're not good enough? What if you're not worthy enough? It's a false teaching. And Paul has been attacking this wrong view from several different angles uh, up to this point, uh, especially here in chapter 3. And his desire is to return this people who have been subjected to this and who are now under this weight to return them to a place of true freedom. We're going to read about that and, and look at that, especially when we get into to chapter 5, true freedom. Uh, and so the, the two covenants here that he, he's going to go to, he's going to now attack this, this same wrong teaching by going through redemptive history. And two covenants he's going to have us look at. One of those is God's covenant with Abraham. Now, we saw it, read about it earlier, Genesis chapter 12. It's also in chapter 15 and 17 and chapter 22. just kind of runs through the whole area, but God reaffirming, reaffirming His covenant with Abraham. And then, 400 years later, God's covenant with Moses. And we need to have a right understanding of these covenants so that we can see what God's doing, what He has done, ultimately what He's doing with us what he's doing with his church. Uh, and so with that in mind, so remember those two covenants, that's what we're looking for because it's not all going to be laid out here uh, in this word. Uh, we're going to be reading Galatians chapter 3. I'll begin in verse 15. Uh, we're just going through verse 22 this morning. So beginning in verse 15, this is uh, God's word. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Verse 19, why then the law? 
It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one. But God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. He were there, believe. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the ways that you have worked in history. We thank you that you have opened that up and, and, and showed us that this is for us to see, to understand that we might apply it to ourselves. And Father, at the same time, there, there are some challenging things in this uh, passage that we're reading through that requires a, a, a knowledge of your word and requires thought and application, requires dealing uh, also with our own sin. And so we pray for your help. We pray that your Holy Spirit would give us the ability to see, to bring things together, uh, to recognize our own need and to apply this, this word uh, to that need. As we look to you for help in Christ's name, amen. Have you ever been lost before? When I say that, I mean really lost. When I was maybe 10 or 12 years old, I became lost in a, a, a desolate part of the National Forest that wasn't too far from where we lived uh, in Brevard. It was Sunday afternoon. Uh, our family sat on a hike together like we often did on the weekends. We, we were together with another family that uh, we often hiked with. And, and so myself and uh, one of the, the boys from the other family, whose name was Steve, he was a number of years older than, than me, we went off ahead, as we often did. Uh, and we just continued forward, not noticing that at some point we must have taken a wrong turn. Uh, and we didn't realize that we had done that until finally we, we stopped and we waited uh, because the path was no longer discernible for us. Uh, and we continued to wait. The others never came. Uh, we yelled, we hooped, and we hollered. Silence. And I remember the sun began to go down. started to get a little bit cooler. I don't know exactly what time of the year it was. And it was, the point was when Steve, he was a number of years older than I was, but when he began to cry, that was a sign for me. We're in big trouble. And, and I felt it deeply. And, and, and so if you've ever been lost before, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, there's this sense of, of hopelessness that sets in. And, and, and you look around, especially as it's getting darker, and you just have a sense this is going to continue forward. What have we done? Hopelessness. We'll come back there. Um, but it, I want to take that with that, that, that thought of uh, lost, lostness, and put it into the spiritual realm. You know, it's, 
we know it's not a good thing to be lost, but here's the problem. Every one of us here have rebelled against God. And so spiritually, we're in a place very much like when my friend and my friend Steve and I were going down the path and then somewhere along the way we took a wrong turn. And for us at that time we didn't even recognize it. That's where some of us are. Sometimes it's very plain and clear, although we somehow justify it. But we've all taken that path, and that path leads to alienation from God. Uh, we read about it earlier. It, it leads to a place where we are without hope. We're lost. You know, we, we talked last week, uh, for those who are here, uh, we talked about the covenant of works, a, a, a relationship with God that every one of us, everyone who is born uh, into this world is in, in which we can't meet God's requirement. His requirement's there. We can't meet it. Perfect, perpetual obedience. And the reason we can't meet it is because the one thing we must have in order to restore our relationship with God, we are completely unable to obtain on our own. We need to be made righteous. We broke the law. We need to be made right before God in the eyes of the law. Now, of course, from God's Word, we can know that we can be, that there is a way out of this spiritual loss. There is a, a way to be made right with God, and, and that's what Paul is addressing in this passage. And he shows us this by going back and looking at, again, what we might call redemptive history, the, the story of salvation. Uh, and, and it's important that we, we go there and we look at this and understand it, because what do we use God's Word for? We use it to, as a proof to truly see and understand, because we trust this. We say, this is, this is true. This is God's true Word. And so we need to see and understand what he has said, the mechanisms he's put in place, and then apply them to ourselves. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's, he's helping us to see what God is really doing. First of all, through his, his covenant with Abraham, and then through his covenant with Moses, so that we can have clarity on our path to salvation. Uh, and this is important, again, for us to see out of Scripture for another reason as well. Because we are so often drawn to that other path because of our sin inside. Uh, and here's the problem that Paul is addressing here, that what we find in the Bible, and we'll talk about the, this particular area that we're looking at today, what we find here uh, is often taught in such a way, or it's understood in such a way as well, that leads us down the wrong path. So we can take God's Word and we can understand it in such a way that it leads us astray. That path is the path of moralism. We've been talking about it uh, week after week as we've gone through Galatians. Uh, and that teaching is all around us. Moralism. Uh, it infuses the world in which we live. We are faced with it day in and day out. You know, the question, how, how do you advance in this world? How, how do you get anything done? How do you move forward? Well, it's all by performance. And if, you, if you do better, if you look prettier, 
Get your body into shape. Sell more. You'll be accepted. You'll be loved. You'll be cared for. You'll receive. That's the path that's taught by the world. And the news is that it's in the church as well. It's in much of the church. It's in many of the, the books and the, the TV shows that are there for our children, that are there for, uh, for those among us who are older. It's in many quote-unquote Christian movies. And it's there in churches as well, especially liberal churches, but certainly not limited to that. And it's mixed up in our own minds and in our own hearts. We struggle with it. It, 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 it impacts the way that we think about things. And so Paul wants these Galatians and he wants us to look at redemptive history rightly understood and to see that that is not from God. That path of moralism is not from God. That faith in Christ and faith alone is the only path to salvation. The only path to remaining in that place with God. Continual faith, looking to Him. He wants us to see and to understand how all of this fits together biblically. How God has been working throughout history, if you can imagine it, for us. That we would see things rightly, that we would be pointed to this one way of salvation so that we would look to Christ and know this is our firm foundation that we just sang about uh, moments a, a, ago. This is the place in which we stand. And we, we must not let ourselves fall into this other path. And so he wants us to recognize, to see and recognize when that wrong teaching is there in whatever form that may come, which may include our own hearts. Uh, and so Paul answers three questions to help us to see this right path, this one path of salvation, not the path of lostness, but the right path through salvation history. Uh, three questions. Uh, what, is, what is first and foremost, what is preeminent for us? Promise or law? How do we see this? How do we work it out? Uh, secondly, who are the true heirs of the promise of God? So we're talking people. And finally, of what value is the law? So he's, he, he's bringing this to them that they might have eyes that are open to see that one right path and follow it. So what is preeminent for us? Promise or law? Uh, the question is, which of these should characterize our approach to the Lord? And in what way? Uh, now the backdrop to what Paul is saying that begins in, in verse 15 that I read moments ago has to do with these two covenants that God made with His people. Uh, and so I, I think it's important that we understand these covenants. Uh, so let's briefly think about the covenants themselves and then we'll take a look at this passage. First of all, Genesis, we read it earlier out of uh, chapter 12, God came to this man, Abraham. We have no indication that beforehand that Abraham was anything special. In fact, he was clearly a pagan. He was uh, part of a family that didn't know God. But God came to him and he made his covenant with him and with his offspring. We saw that in Genesis uh, chapter 12, we can see it repeated again after that. 
And the primary characteristic of that covenant that stands out more than anything else, and if you want, you can look back at Genesis chapter 12. It's easy to get there. Uh, Look back at that, uh, those first few verses. The primary characteristic that stands out was the promise of God. It was what God graciously would do for Abraham and for his offspring. If you, and, and you look at it, I happen to have them underlined, so it's easier here, but as you look through those verses, you'll see, I will, I will, I will, I will. Earlier this morning in Sunday school, Bo pointed that out in something else that we were looking at. We, the, the, the promises of God, that, that is the nature of a promise. That's, that, that's promise language, if you will. I will. And don't you love that language when it's talking about a tremendous blessing that's going to come to you, that you can look forward to, and you know it's going to come to you because the one who said it is trustworthy. Well, in this case, it was Abraham and his offspring and the Lord, the one who is all faithful. Uh, This is the language of promise that he received. And as we saw earlier in in, uh, Galatians chapter 3, we we addressed Abraham earlier. The requirement for Abraham to receive these promises was trust in God. It was faith. Those are always linked together. Promises and faith. When there are promises made that if we're the one that those promises are being made to, we just receive those promises. They're being made uh, to us. And so that's what Abraham had to do. Faith. Childlike faith in a, in a very real sense. Uh, I wasn't dependent upon any performance of Abraham. Now there's a later covenant that Paul points to here. And it's uh, the covenant, God's covenant with Moses Exodus chapter 19 through 24 is where it's uh, really uh, uh, began and where we hear the, the statement is formally made in chapter 24 of Exodus. Um, God makes his covenant with Moses and with Israel, with those who are in Moses. Uh, we spent many weeks earlier this year, end of last year, going through this covenant. And, uh, and, and I'd like for you just to think about this covenant, what you know about it, Moses called the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, what is it that characterizes this covenant more than anything else? Think about what's right there in the heart of it. Chapter 20 of Exodus. The law, the Ten Commandments, uh, the case law that's there. Think about what, what's the language that's repeated again and again and again. You shall not, you shall not, you shall not. Or you shall. This is the language of law. What's being emphasized there is the requirement for the people. So you've got these two covenants. First one emphasizing the promise of God, what He's going to do. The second one emphasizing the law of God, what the Israelites were required to do. Okay, that's that's the background. Let's look at the passage beginning in verse 15, Galatians 3. 
To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Uh, look down to verse 17. We'll come back to 16. This is what I mean, Paul says. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Remember, what, what's he talking about there? He's talking about promise. So what covenant is he talking about? The Abrahamic covenant. He has to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, he starts that off giving a human example. And if, if you're used to contracts and things like wills and, and, and that type of thing, you've dealt with that a lot in the past, and this is going to be more familiar to you. This is the, the territory that he's dealing with. And he gives a human example to start off with. Think about a, a will. Uh, after the person who makes that, who has made that will, after they died, no one can go in then and just change the will. No, it's, it's, it's legally binding, the, the language of the will. Now, people try to do that all, all the time, right? Uh, there was somebody who uh, had, a, had a will and, and they gave away much of their, their wealth uh, when they died, and that's when the family saw it, and members of the family said, no, that's not right. Uh, he didn't hardly know this person, or it shouldn't go to that person. They, they go in, and there's a, a lawsuit, and they try to change the, the parameters of the will. You can't do that. It's legally binding. And that's what uh, Paul's argument here is, that just because... God's covenant with Moses, with its emphasis on law, comes hundreds of years later, after the Abrahamic covenant. It's the most recent one that it doesn't cancel, it doesn't remove, it doesn't change the promises of God that were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now, that's what the Judaizers were essentially doing. They were looking to this covenant. They were saying, in order to... To, to live in a right way before God. You, you've got to obey the parameters of the law. That's how you're going to, to gain standing before God. Paul is saying no. He's saying that uh, God's covenant that he made with Moses, which emphasizes law, uh, the, you, the, the you shall not language, it cannot be taken in isolation from the covenant that God made with Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant remains in place. It was never annulled, never altered in its essence by the Mosaic covenant. God's promise of life and a blessing remains irrevocable. So what we see there is that, in a sense, the promise of God comes first. Now, it doesn't mean that law was unimportant. We'll talk about that in a minute. It is important. But what, what I want us to hear, what Paul wants us to hear, is that what comes first is all about what God will do. That's what's important. He, he says simply, look to me, trust in me, and I will, I will, I will, I will. You know, that, that, 
Think about what you and I hear. We're, we're surrounded by voices that say, this is your duty. If you do this, then you can be received. You can be accepted. We begin to think that way. The truth is, no, that's impossible with God. You know, that may be there for other religions, and it is. It has to be. It is moralism with other religions that are out there and others who take Christianity and change it into that. That's a religion of man. That's a burden that weighs people down. What did Jesus say? He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is, this is God's covenant of grace that He has provided. He's the one who takes the initiative. And, and we can't do anything whatsoever to earn it, to provide for ourselves. What we learn, what we see here is that promise, in this sense, take, takes precedence over law. Now, what we don't realize uh, is that that is true for us because of what has been done for us. A law is tremendously important. Uh, law is absolutely a requirement for that for us. We saw that before in the shorter catechism. We see it through and through in, in God's Word. But the requirement, when we come by faith, the requirement that we have in the law that puts that weight on us, that gives us that sense. Remember, I talked about being in the forest, a desolate place, and being completely lost. It gives us that sense of lostness, of hopelessness. But when we come by faith, that is taken care of by another. And that's what we're going to see next, who that other is and how that works. So the first question, what is preeminent for us? Promise or law? Promise. Uh, the next question, who are the true heirs of the promise of God? In other words, who is it that makes up the true family of God, the covenant, His covenant family, who are really able to call one another brother and sister because they take part in God's covenant, His in, inward covenant? Now, this could be a bit of a challenge here for us to see, for us to understand. So, let's look at this carefully. I told you we'd come back to verse 16. Uh, look with me at verse 16, Paul says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. We've already looked at that. We've heard that. Uh, we read it earlier. He says, It does not say, and to offsprings. That's with an S on the end. Referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. And so the big question here is, who are the offspring of Abraham that God was speaking about? Uh, when we go back in, in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and 17 and 22, uh, who were the promises made to? Who were these offspring? You know, in those places, the Lord said, to this offspring I will give this land. And he was, in a sense, talking about a physical land, what we call the promised land but we also see in Hebrews chapter 11 that Abraham and the others weren't just looking to that land. They were looking to a greater 
land that lay ahead for them. They saw in the promises of God not just something that was physical, but something that was everlasting. Not, not something just temporary, but that would continue on and provide for them in the presence of God. You know, this is uh, one of those places, as we, as we look back at that verse 16, where Paul uses grammar. I know for some of us that may strike terror into our hearts. He uses grammar and even detailed grammar to make his point. That word offspring, think about it for a second, offspring. It can be used collectively to talk about many offspring, right? Uh, in fact, Paul uses it that in that way in a number of senses. Uh, all the children that descend from, that's a collective sense. Uh, but it can also be used offspring in a singular sense sense. You know, Paul uses it here in a singular sense, that even though it's Isaac that was the offspring who might have received the promise, to whom the promise might have been made, Paul is saying that ultimately, in, in the scheme of things, in what God is doing, that ultimately, when it comes down to the salvation promises of God, that it wasn't the physical offspring who were the heirs. That it was ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true offspring. You know, Paul is showing the Galatians here how they are able to receive God's promises. He's saying, this that you see back here, this doesn't just apply to those who are in the land uh, to the people that we call Israel in that day, a physical people, an ethnic people, but it's able to apply to you as well. You know, they didn't need to receive the promises uh, in a physical way. They were given in a spiritual way. And, and uh, what was it? that was the requirement for receiving those promises. It was faith. Faith. What do we need? What do the Galatians need? Faith in Jesus Christ. You know, remember what we said before about the reality for every one of us. That, that we've all rebelled against God. We've all taken that path that has alienated us from God, that has left us in a place that is without hope. We are under the law. We are unable to meet the requirement of the law. We are in that state of lostness. Can't make ourselves right with God. This covenant says that for all those who trust in Christ, that one thing that we really need, having the law taken care of, is taken care of in these promises. You see how through this covenant, the Lord Jesus Christ has stepped in and taken upon Himself what was ours to take. He fulfills the requirement of the law. He, he takes care of the penalty that we face because we didn't take care of the requirement. It's not upon us now. It's upon Him. This is what we call substitutionary atonement. It's the Lord Jesus Christ stepping in and taking upon Himself that which was ours, that which only we could take. That's why we were hopeless but now we're in a place of great hope. He has atoned 
for our sin. And so, therefore, through this covenant that's made with Christ, we are able, by faith in Him, to become united with Him and to become one of those offspring. That's what it means to be in union with Christ. That uh, we come and we look to Christ and we are a part of Him and a part of what He has done. We receive the inheritance that He receives. He fulfills the righteous requirement of the law for us. I don't know if you uh, remember that uh, earlier out of uh, Romans chapter 8, our assurance of pardon were these words, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, that's the substitution, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that, and this is what we get, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit by faith. This is the gift that we are able to have. And it comes through faith and therefore through our union with Christ. So two questions. What is preeminent for us? Promise or law? Secondly, who are the true heirs of the promise of God? And then finally, okay, and and this is just the, the question that flows out. I think almost anyone who's reading this passage, understanding this so far, the Galatians certainly would have would have had it. Okay, well, what is the value of law then? Why was the law given? That's a very important question and a natural question. Uh, now, we did deal with that question quite a bit when we went through the, the, the book of Exodus. We dealt with the law. Uh, how does that law apply to us? What does it benefit us? Now, Paul asks it in the passage very simply in this way. If you look at verse 19, he says, Why then the law? And then straight away he gives an answer. And he says, It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And then he goes on and talks about how the law was put into place by an intermediary, uh, which was Moses. Uh, And he says an intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. There are a couple of different ways of of seeing what he's saying there. Uh, But through and through, the the question that he's dealing with is, is this question about the law. Uh, Why then the law? What does he mean when he says it was added because of transgression? Now, some have looked at this and they have said that this is saying that at that point, the people's sin had, had gotten too bad, it had gotten too flagrant at this point in history, and so something had to be done about their sin. It had to be held back, it had to be restrained in some way. Sort of like what the government does, right, with the, the, the police force or the military. Uh, that is what God has, has given for government to do, to hold back evil. So maybe that's what Paul meant here uh, when he, he talked about it was added because of transgressions. It, it was there to help people avoid sin. But if we think about what happened in the giving of the law, do you remember anything about the children of Israel following the giving of the law? You'll recognize that it was actually given for the opposite reason. Because that's what happened. Because that's what happened. 
Uh, when it was given, it, it didn't decrease uh, the transgression. No. Their sin increased ever more. Now, why? Why would God give the law in order to bring out our sin, in order to increase it? Well, that's what the law does. It exposes sin. It shows it for what it is. It shows it. It shows that it is direct rebellion against God. It's a violation of, of His holy standard. Uh, so, what the written law did, and what it does, is it makes things worse. Because our, our sin is, is seen. You know, we feel the guilt. We feel the weight. Why? Why? Think about the scenario I described earlier when myself and uh, this other boy, Steve, when we were taking the path and we took the wrong path. And think about if we had continued in the way that we were. We had continued just happily going along, thinking we were okay, continued on and on and on, and gotten ourselves to a place, at least we knew, when you're lost, what do you not do? You don't just go running off in a certain direction. You, you stick where you are. And so that's what we did. And you know what we finally did? We, we climbed a, a tall tree, and it was, it was dusk, but we were able to see well enough uh, that... We could actually see that the parkway, the Blue Ridge Parkway, it wasn't that far off. And so all of a sudden we had this sweet sense that, that there it is. Uh, but what if we had continued on, never thinking about any sense of lostness? When I saw tears in Steve's eyes, I knew the feeling of lostness. I knew the feeling of hopelessness. That's why God gave the law. It's that we might see our sin, that it might be opened up, that it might be exposed. It doesn't make us more sinful. We're already sinful. What it does is it brings it out so that it's visible and we see what it is if we're seeing rightly. We see the law says this is against God. And I'm living this way day in and day out without a heart of repentance. I'm not turning from it. Therefore, I'm in a place of, of hopelessness. What's going to happen if I continue in this way? What does it say about who I am, about where my relationship is? It says it's not there. That I'm continuing to live under the covenant of works, which only means that, yes, I'm in a relationship with God, but ultimately it will be condemnation. We need to know that. We need to see that. Here's how Martin Luther put it. He said, The true function and the chief and proper use of the law is to reveal to man his sin, his blindness, his misery, wickedness, ignorance, hate, and contempt of God. Death, hell, judgment, and the well-deserved wrath of God. Why? Because the more and more that we see and we know these things... And we know the law. The more we see how great our sin has become, the more that we, we really see it and we feel it inside, and it begins to affect us, the more we're driven by God's grace to see the path that He's given us, the right path, and to confess who we are and to confess the path that we've been on so that we turn to Christ by faith. And what happens every time we turn by faith? 
We're turning away from, we're repenting of our sin. Now the key in all of this, I just want to leave you with, is that the law is not therefore opposed to the promises of God, to the grace of God. That's what is often taught. That you've got the law, and then you've got grace, and they're, they're against each other. But what we see here is they're on the same team. They're playing together. God has given them both to us, His promises and the law, that we might see Him more clearly. Now, there are other uses of the law. We've talked about one of those, and we can talk about the other one at some point. But, but this, when it comes to faith in Christ, this is how the law works It is there to drive us to Christ. And that's what every single one of us here needs. We need to see the path that we're on. Whether we've come to faith in Christ before. And there's still sin that's lingering there. We need to see it and confess it before the Lord. That we might turn, return to our God. And continue to walk with Him. You know, if, if, if the law is contrary to the promises of God, Paul says, uh, what, what's, what's, or he says, is the law contrary to the promises of God? How do, what does he say? Certainly not. For if a law had been, given that could give, had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. That's what we're looking for, isn't it? Life. That's what the promises are. Life. Uh, the ability to live together with God, to know God, and to know the blessings of God, and there, therefore to live as part of His family, to be used by Him. But the law can't bring us that. It can't bring us a bit of life. We've got to use the, the law in the right way. What he's saying is that God's promise serves a function, and God's law serves a function but these two are not at odds with one another. They are both that which God has given, that we might live, that we might truly live. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you that, uh, that you do know us, that as your word says, you know our frame. Therefore, you, you give us what we need and you give it to us in the way that we need it. You are gracious and kind. Your, your, your grace and Your mercy, they extend forever and ever. And Your promises are always faithful. We thank You for that, Lord. Yet in our own sin, we so often don't see that. We don't take notice of it. We continue on the path that we've set in front of us and often it is that wrong path that we head down. We pray, Lord, that you would bring us recognition, bring us understanding, bring us back. Uh, help us, Lord, to follow your path, to follow you, and therefore to live lives of the joy that comes out of living in the way that we've been made, living together with our God. We pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.